Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Got a very special guest lined up today. Matt Eddy, the executive editor at Baseball America, joins me today. We're going to talk about some late season arrivals, the types of players that you might be stashing away on keeper and dynasty league rosters or thinking a lot about in deeper mixed leagues and AL and NL only leagues for 2022. There's a few other players we're going to talk about, including some overlooked upper level minor leaguers, which I think will be a fascinating topic really throughout the winter as teams have to make decisions for their 40 man rosters. Talk about a few things we've learned over the course of this season, and we'll continue our quest to find ways to make fantasy baseball more broadly appealing because uh, as football starts up every year I'm reminded of just how small fantasy baseball is by comparison and hopefully someday we can actually change that Matt thanks for joining me today oh hey Derek my pleasure thank you for having me so for people who haven't heard you or read your work before uh, when did you begin in baseball and when did you start playing fantasy baseball in particular how far back do you go this is my 21st year at baseball America um, so I've kind of worked my way up from the, from the bottom. Uh, I've, for most of the period, I've been more of a stratomatic player, uh, who dabbled with Roto here and there. Um, it wasn't until, uh, five years ago that I discovered dynasty leagues. Uh, and that was really the missing piece for me that, that continuity year over year was really pulled me in, not to mention the, the prospect, um, aspect of it. Th- those two things really drew me in. And I think, for me, the dynasty has made all the difference. Totally makes sense based on, on what you do, especially if you're spending so much time looking at the future, you want to you know, battle test those those beliefs and those rankings and see like, well, am I right? Do I do I have the, the right combinations of players? Do I have the right ideas about who is going to become what uh, over the course of the long haul? I think dynasty baseball is really tough to get into for the first time. We'll talk about that. Uh, a little bit later on, but yeah, I mean, twenty plus years now of doing this, you've uh, you've seen some things. You've lived through some disappointing prospects over the years, and uh, obviously have some big successes though along the way too. Um, but we definitely had a lot of questions coming in in the last week or so about you know, players that you could hold on to, players that are surprising us late in the season. You had a great piece; I think it came out at the end of August. It was twelve dynasty prospects you need to know in September, and you had five major league players that were included in there. And it was that last part of the article in particular that really caught my eye. Cause that's the thing I miss most about playing in a dynasty league. I was in the Rotowire dynasty invitational that unfortunately folded. And now I'm looking for a new dynasty league. And these are exactly the types of players that you're always looking to find because they're, they're found money. They're guys that show up and end up sticking on your roster for a few years. And oftentimes you Put those guys with the core pieces you have, make a few trades, much like real baseball, and suddenly you're in contention, even in a really deep league. Uh, But the most interesting player that you wrote about is Jake Myers in Houston. And for all the concerns we had about the Astros center field situation coming to the season after they lost George Springer, they've really been just fine. 
do you think there's a chance that Myers is the long-term answer for the Astros in that spot? Yes, I, I do believe that Jake Myers will eventually take that job um, with Chaz McCormick being a, a solid um, fallback slash reserve. I think, you know, Myers had very little helium coming into the season and playing for Sugarland, which is new to affiliated baseball. We didn't know quite what to expect from that park environment. And as it turned, and as the season played out, that turned out to be a, a pretty severe pitcher's park, which kind of masked some of Myers' production. Um, you can kind of get a sense of that looking at his home road splits at AAA. And I think he's really, I think he's really proven in his in his brief major league time what his upside might look like. And for me, yes, I, I would I would project him. And I think the Astros projected too. I mean, the Miles Straw trade indicates as much that they are looking at Myers and McCormick as the future at center field. Yeah, I think some people are, are curious, too, as to where Pedro Leon is going to fit in on this team eventually. I know when he debuted at AA this year, the strikeout rate initially was off the charts high. By the time he was promoted, he was closer to, to 30%. Only have to play seven games at AAA, and he has uh, been spotted at shortstop, so I don't know how realistic it is that he'll actually you know play there in the long run at the big league level, but how do you see Leon kind of fitting into this plan, too? Yeah, Leon is fascinating. Uh, one of the top international signees from last year. Um, you know, the, the Astros are in a unique spot having no long-term, no obvious long-term shortstop or center fielder. So they're going to try Leon at both. You know, I think Leon's upside, if, if center field proves to be his best position, I think you could see him muscle his way into that, into that share, you know, in 2023 and beyond. Uh, but that, that is a, a fascinating uh, development to watch, whether he's shortstop or center field. Yeah, still some more time to wait, though, I think, for him to kind of finish that development in the highest level of the minor leagues. Uh, let's talk about Edmundo Sosa for a moment. The Cardinals, I mean, they're it, it's devil magic in my mind because I am a Brewers fan, so I am constantly frustrated by how good the Cardinals are. Um, you know, it's funny when I talk to Cubs fans, we actually have the common enemy, so then we get along for a little while. This is remarkable what the Cardinals are doing, and Sosa's part of it. He's not the only reason, of course, that they've rallied back from like 5% playoff odds to almost 95% playoff odds as we're we're talking here on September 23rd. But uh, what do you make of Sosa? Because I didn't see Paul DeYoung just losing his job this season, and that's that's what's happened. Is Sosa part of the solution beyond this season, or could the Cardinals be among the teams that are are chasing that crop of great free agent shortstops that we have coming available this winter? Yeah, it's possibly the latter. You know, it might be hard to envision a big investment given what they've committed to Goldschmidt and Arenado and and, and others. But you know, Sosa I think gives them a, a you know a defense and athleticism element that they might have lacked with the young. Because that was the criticism against the Cardinals, you know, a couple of years ago. Is this, this team just does not score well with defensive metrics and just isn't athletic enough. And plugging in Sosa at shortstop and having Arenado at third has, has really helped address that. So I could see Sosa being a bit of a stopgap for those reasons. Um, I don't think it would preclude the Cardinals from making a move there. Um, you know, <laughs> DeYoung is in the wrong organization to kind of go back to third base, which I think was his primary position in college, but. You know, maybe he has some trade value, and maybe that they help help address shortstop that way. There's a lot of different ways it could play out. What do you think? I've been wondering if uh, if Sosa ends up kind of taking 
I don't know, like the new Tommy Edmond role. Like if Edmond has a spot to call his own, let's say at second base, and Sosa's the super utility guy, that they wouldn't just go out and make a splash in free agency because it seems like they they have a core that's good enough to stay pretty close to the level they're at right now, and they'd want to keep pushing chips in. Like they have the resources to do it, so you know why not? Maybe it's a, a Corey Seager or somebody along those lines. They could lock into that spot for the next five or six years and, and really put more heat on uh, other teams in that division. But I think the other the thing with the Cardinals, just as a sidebar, I know Jack Flaherty is going to start in the doubleheader on Friday, so he's starting to work his way back. I just don't trust their starting pitching in the postseason. I know anyone who gets there can win, but I still have a lot of doubts about the pitching actually being good enough. And I know they can bullpen their way out of some trouble too, uh, but I look at the veterans there. I, I look at Lester and Happ, and I am just not, scared of them if I'm a playoff caliber offense no they're not the fit ball stars that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah, Flaherty does would give them a dimension that they really need in a postseason environment uh you know Wainwright being ageless you know that helps too but I'm with you though overall yeah scary enough to um you know, knock anybody out of a wild card game and maybe even win a series. But I just don't know if you can win a World Series with uh, that rotation, which I'm going to regret saying like a month from now when it <laughs> happens. It's going to make it feel even worse. Um, let's talk about a former Cardinal getting an opportunity in Washington, Lane Thomas. And he's one of those players, just does a little bit of everything, doesn't necessarily have a carrying tool or category even that you say, oh, Lane Thomas is going to be a 25 steals guy or he's going to be a 25 home runs guy. But he could be... Someone that maybe gives us five categories of production. Do you think he sticks as an everyday guy now that he's getting this chance in DC? Has he done enough to prove himself and and carve out a spot for next season? Yeah, he's interesting. Um, you know, his reputation as a prospect was an athlete who probably fits best as a fourth outfielder slash uh, you know weak side platoon guy. And I think ultimately that's what he'll be. He's really capitalized on this environment on this opportunity with the Nationals they've depleted their offense and he's leading off. And if you look at his, his splits, like his lefty righty splits are, are, are poor. He's not a great hitter overall against right-handed pitchers and another level, you know, he's his, his, his OPS when leading off an inning or leading off a game is really high. Like to me, that indicates perhaps that he's ambushing pitchers who are just trying to get ahead, you know, throw strikes, not have runners on base for Juan Soto and, we might see that, you know, I, I would be wary of that regressing. No, I think that makes sense. And I think with uh, this, this Nats team in general, I, I'm not sure what their offseason direction is going to be. I was surprised they included Trey Turner in the Max Scherzer deal. Trading Scherzer made sense to me. Trading Turner didn't because I thought they weren't that far away from possibly being contenders again. But it makes me wonder if they're going to try and, and take guys like Thomas and Andrew Stevenson and just like organizational guys and just see what happens. Or if they're going to shop the bargain bin in free agency. They kind of did that this past winter, though, too, even with the core they had in place. You know, the, the trade for Josh Bell, you know, Kyle Schwarber on a one-year deal with an option. So maybe it's more of that and a few of these guys that haven't previously even had a path maybe like one of those spots will remain open and it'll be a an ongoing battle maybe those two guys platoon together right i mean it's possible that stevenson and thomas share one spot and that could actually work pretty well so it kind of sounds like you see more of a like an austin slater type profile from lane thomas that plays 
in our deeper leagues, but it doesn't necessarily play in, in 12 and even 15-team mixers unless the playing time ticks up because of the schedule or because of an injury. Yeah, I'd want to see how the league adjusts back to him. And I think you're right. I think if you look at the players they targeted in that blockbuster, getting um, Josiah Gray and Kaber Ruiz indicates that they're looking shorter timeline. Speaking of Ruiz, uh, he's one of those players that I think had much a much greater prospect pedigree like two to three years ago, and then all the power showed up this year, so now everyone's kind of back in. Do you believe in the power we saw from him this year at AAA? I mean, do, we, do you see him as a guy with a legitimately well above average hit tool who can pop 20-plus home runs? Yes, I think so. I think this has been forecasted for a while. He, he just wasn't... Um, you know, he, he was just catching up to the speed of the level he was at because this guy was playing a double A at 19, if, or maybe 18, mm-hmm. if, if I recall correctly. And I think we're now s- seeing some of those gains manifest. Uh, so I would expect him to be a 20 home run type of a contributor for the Nationals. Yeah, I'm excited for him. I think he's going to be a helium guy in redraft leagues for sure. But it was just weird, like age to level. Like I, It was really impressive just being at the levels he was at, uh, let alone like, not striking out pretty much at every stop too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's talk about some pitching. Let's get to Aaron Ashby, who I think because of the Brewers' recent history in developing pitching plays up in my mind a little bit. It's not the fanhood. It's the belief that the organization can maximize what it gets pretty much from all of its pitchers. He's looked filthy, and it's been kind of a you know swing role where he's just a glue guy. If they need him to go three, four, whatever, he, he just kind of fills in. Works out great for now. I think it's really tough for me to project how he fits into the rotation next year. Maybe there's a trade or an injury or something that, that clears that path. But what's your assessment of, of Ashby? And Is it kind of surprising to you that he's having a lot more success just in terms of the ratios during his first run against big league hitters than he had back at AAA during his time in Nashville this year. Yeah, that, that disparity is surprising to me. You know, I, I'm not as familiar with him as, as you are, obviously, but you know, this is a, a known guy coming into the year. And <laughs> you make a great point. Nobody would have projected Freddie Peralta into the type of role he's in right now based on what we knew about him you know, three years ago. So I, I, I'm pretty much in lockstep with you on that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back to the first draft I did for 2021. It started about a year ago uh, next week. We have one to do with Todd Zola. I've talked about on this pod before. And you, you don't have ADP. You don't have a lot of time to get projections. You don't really have anything to work off of except for things that just happened and what you believe. 
Freddie Peralta wasn't drafted in that league because he was in the bullpen last year in the shortened season. 450 picks, and he went undrafted. And I'm sure even when the season began and we had our first fab run, I can't imagine he went for more than 5 to 7% of someone's budget, even with that opportunity to start, because there was so much uncertainty about how good he could be in that particular role. So I think with Ashby, you know, I'm, I'm expecting him to be broken in slowly in part because of the success of the guys in front of him and the lack of opportunities. That even includes guys like Adrian Hauser, who I think always exceeds my expectations. Maybe my expectations are just too low. Um, but even Eric Lauer, like you and I had an exchange about him at least a, a month or so ago now. And when I watch him, I don't see anything that just catches my attention where I go, yeah, he's he's great. He's He's got an amazing anything. I, I just think he's a, a solid back-end guy, and yet he's now pitching a level above that too. So I, I, again, this is just purely trusting development of the organization. I think there's a pretty short list of teams where I will like blindly trust them. I think the Dodgers are one, the Astros are one, the Brewers are one. Are there any other organizations pitching-wise that you look at and say, they get it, and they take guys that I see as just kind of fringy for the back end or swingman, and they somehow turn them into something more. I think you know the Giants would be another place to go with that one, pretty much with any player type, mm-hmm. <laughs> which has really made the NL West uh, quite competitive. Um, boy, that's a tough question. Um, I didn't, nothing else comes to mind. I mean, the Indians certainly had that reputation for a while. They, they got the best out of Carlos Carrasco, Corey Kluber, and others I'm not thinking of right now, they would be another example for me. Yeah, I mean, the, the Bieber too. Like, I think the the Bieber development relative to expectations, I, I think, just kind of blew my mind. Like, I, I thought I had him figured out as a home streamer, you know, maybe occasional for a good road matchup sort of starting pitcher, good command guy. Stuff is fine, but not necessarily uh, eye-popping. That's what I thought he was going to be. Uh, but I think with Ashby... I think if he gets an opportunity, he can pretty easily be a top 40 starting pitcher. I don't think you can rank him as that or expect that because, again, the path is a little bit blocked for now. Um, let's go to Minnesota and talk about Bailey Ober for a minute because I think there was a, a point, something we talked about on Rates and Barrels, where the Twins under Wes Johnson were starting to look like an organization that was maximizing the value of its pitching and maybe they were headed in the right direction. And that's not to say that they're definitively not headed in the right direction right now, but I think we've pumped the brakes a little bit on those expectations or at least elevating them to that part of the conversation. Bailey Ober has been a pleasant surprise and he's got great numbers in the minors. The big issue is home runs. And I'm just curious if you think he can fix that in the long run and and what you think the, the future holds for him in 2022 specifically, but even just beyond if you see him as a a long-term fixture in this twins rotation. The, the Twins are excited about Ober. Um, number one, they don't have a ton of homegrown pitching depth until they went out and traded for it this season, um, as well as seeing some developments from other from their internal guys, um, probably headlined by Josh Winder. Um, and number two, Ober can throw his his breaking and off speed pitches for strikes, which is something that helps him survive in the major leagues, even with you know, a fastball that is not ideal and the home run problem you mentioned. So I think there is some growth upside there if they figure out how to get his fastball to play up a little better. This is kind of the the Patrick Sandoval conundrum where the fastball just didn't really play. You just need to find a way to get that, to minimize that pitch or find some new wrinkle for that pitch. I get the sense that that profile 
can work better now than it's ever worked before because teams seem to be a lot more open-minded about the use of secondary pitches. You don't have to throw a fastball 60-70% of the time the way you would have in the past. And I feel like that opens up this really interesting group of players that uh, might actually exceed expectations and might exceed traditionally how we would value them. So I think that's a pretty fun thing that maybe Ober has. And there's obviously a lot of other pitchers that have that too. We're seeing some guys in the big leagues uh, already making adjustments that are very different compared to adjustments that were made in the past. I want to take a look at a few relievers too, because I think when you start looking in keeper and dynasty leagues late in the year, one of the things you'll find plenty of are relievers with good ratios and even young relievers who aren't necessarily all in high leverage roles yet, but bullpen roles change really quickly. And I think we're still going to see more teams start to follow that raise model and not have one closer. I think the raise when I checked yesterday had 13 pitchers who had a save this season and their leader Diego Castillo, of course, got traded at the trade deadline. Uh, but there's one spot that I think could just be a pretty smooth transition this could be the end of the Kenley Jansen era with the Dodgers. The contract runs out at the end of the season. They've had that, is this the end for Kenley, kind of skills-wise thought, probably creep through their minds at least once each of the last three seasons or so now. And they've got Bruce Dargratterall as what looks like to me a guy that could just take that job and hold it for like the next five years. So I'm just curious, uh, what's your interest level in Gratterall specifically? And, and how often do you feel like it's worth taking a shot on a really skilled reliever, given the noise that kind of comes around actually becoming a closer? Yeah, that is kind of the, the catch 22 with the relievers. You want the ones on good teams because they get more saves, but it's harder to become a closer on a good team. Mm-hmm. Um, Gratterall, you know, there was some buzz on Twitter earlier this year when when the he started throwing a cutter or what appeared to be a cutter to kind of give him a dip, uh, a glove side pitch to complement his uh, you know arm side heavy sinker repertoire. So, g- given the the preference the Dodgers seem to have for ground ball relievers, I think there is a chance you could see him in the ninth. You know, but the flip side being the Dodgers might also import somebody to take that role too. So that that. That's a difficult one. Like, how confident are you in, in Gratterall becoming a closer? I still think it's more like a one in three sort of shot because you, mm-hmm. you have yeah, the endless possibilities in free agency trade. Obviously, they're very active that way, too. And it's not as though he's the only interesting young reliever they have, too. So they could just go a different direction. But I, I also could see you know the, the Dodgers being one of the first big market teams to embrace what the Rays are doing, given... Andrew Friedman coming from the Rays, right? Like there's there's a lot of ways the Dodgers can spend money and maybe not spending up on a high-priced reliever is one more way to get an extra bat or an extra extra 10 million freed up to tack on to uh, an annual AAV for a, for a starting pitcher, right? So I, I think that's sort of the, the risk that we're running too is like even if they don't bring somebody in, someone else could get the role if they go with one guy and they could be among the next teams to just go down the, let's use six different guys to get saves this year. It'll be great. We've got we got a bunch of good, different good relievers. That wouldn't surprise me at all. That, isn't that kind of what we see in the postseason, too, when they kind of lose confidence in Jensen? Jensen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Urias kind of uh, in recent years taking on those more prominent roles. Yeah, it's it just gives me some, some doubts about their interest in, in maintaining the closer role as, as a group. But if, I, if you said pick one guy that you think will actually close, if they let Jansen go, they don't, they don't bring him back, 
Gratterall would be the first guy that I would I would pick up for now, hoping that I guessed right, mostly. Um, let's talk about the Cubs. They've got uh, a mess on their hands, and uh, Manny Rodriguez, I think, is pretty interesting. And again, we're we're acknowledging how difficult it is to predict a closer, but I think they're less likely to be spending for a proven closer than the Dodgers, given where they're at in a, a hopefully for them, quick rebuild. I'm not sure how, how quickly that's actually going to play out, but uh, what do you think about Manny Rodriguez as a maybe overlooked option to emerge as a closer for early 2022? Yeah, I was really excited about him when he got called up uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Cubs really wanted to showcase him in the Futures game. He, you know, he made the National League team. He pitched very well at the event, you know, showing stuff that, frankly, I don't think we realized he had. And and then after the trade deadline, they brought him up, and um, David Ross managed his first few appearances in such a way that he wanted to get the ball to Rodriguez in the ninth inning. So that gave me further confidence. And then he hasn't pitched particularly well since then. <laughs> but <laughs> I think, like, in terms of a raw stuff <laughs> – from a raw stuff standpoint, an opportunity standpoint, yes, you know, give him this major league time now, an off season to refine, and see where we stand in June next year. Yes, I like that play. Yeah, I think that's that's like to me that that's where you should be looking at pitchers. Look at what it looks like, not what the results are. Like, just, is this good enough? Are these two or three good pitches that will consistently get big league hitters out and? The role will sort itself out later. That's that's the gamble here. It's not really trying to predict how exactly the the dominoes are going to fall. Because I mean, I look at that group of guys in the bullpen right now. I think they're going to give Adbert Alzale another run as a starter, as they should. Like I, I think there are reasons to do that. Even when you throw out the current state of the Cubs rotation, I think he has shown enough to see how that plays out over another season. Rowan Wick is probably the favorite, I guess, if you had to pick a holdover, but this could be a team that also quickly trades relievers in 2022 and tries to get more young talent in the organization. So could be a lot of turnover in Chicago as they continue this process. Um, the other name that I thought was pretty interesting is Camilo Doval. And I saw him come into a pretty interesting like early game spot again on Wednesday night. I believe it was a bases loaded situation. Nobody out. Uh, Manny Machado was up for the Padres. It was probably Four nothing at the time might have been the fourth or fifth inning, so it's like early in the game, and your first instinct is, well, that's not a closer spot, but it was kind of a significant turning point. And he came in, struck out Machado on three straight sliders, got a double play, got out of the inning, and the Giants, and you know, ended up rolling to win that game. But I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be more open minded about how teams are using relievers currently and how that really doesn't give us any actual insight into how they're going to use them in the future. And I could see the Giants really trying to test Doval in spots where, yeah, it's not the seventh or the eighth, but these are spots where he's facing opposing teams' best hitters when it actually does matter. And that, to me, might be just as much of an indication that they could see him pitching ninth innings down the road as anything else. Yeah, I, I think a, a pitcher like Doval, who has such a unique arm angle and such unique velocity from that, I think... I think he would probably be best used in like a raise model where you're just trying to always give contrasting looks with the next pitcher and, and with matchup considerations, you know, especially right on right with him uh, that that might limit his, his closer opportunities for that reason. But yeah, in terms of pure stuff and we've seen the giants um, toy with uh, unusual, <laughs> unusual arm angles with Rogers in the bullpen, giving him some save ops. So there, I think there will be stray save ops for Doval 
Um, but like, like you were saying, it's full-time closer. It's probably uh, less than 50, 50 on that. Yeah. I think it's more like projecting him for 10 to 12 saves and a lot of strikeouts. Cause it doesn't seem like righties pick him up well at all. He's <laughs> pure filth. Um, let's talk about some players who are in the upper levels of the minor leagues who might have been overlooked over the course of the season. One thing, uh, as we were you know, getting ready to do this show, you were lamenting that September call-ups are just not what they used to be because it's two players now, and it used to be basically most of the 40-man roster coming up in September, and we get a look at a whole bunch of guys that otherwise might not even get a chance in the big leagues until the following season if they ever even got the opportunity uh, at all. And uh, there's a bunch of guys here that you, you suggested to me. I am not familiar with any of them. So we'll start with <laughs> Juan Yepes, who is at the AAA level in the Cardinals organization. What type of player are we looking at with Yepes? Yeah, Juan Yepes, who they got, uh, you know, Y-E-P-E-Z, that's how you spell his last name. He's, uh, you know, signed as a third baseman. He's more of a first baseman now, uh, six foot one, right handed hitter. Not necessarily what you're looking for, you know, prototype wise for a first base masher, but you know, the Cardinals introducing the universal DH might introduce some, some more opportunity for, for Yepes, who has hit very, very well in AAA. Uh, scouts like his ability to hit velocity. He makes pitchers come into the strike zone. He's pretty selective, you know, with a lot of these fringe AAA major league guys. I don't want to say that he's a fringe player, but guys between AAA and the majors, you want to see how he handles secondary, improve himself against breaking stuff in the majors. He hasn't proven that yet, but he does have the kind of upside, uh, I think, to be, you know, kind of a last man consideration for your uh, Dynasty League team. Yeah, definitely a guy I don't really see uh, high up on any prospect list. I mean, I think our, our friend James Anderson's got him, had him ranked once, like in the back of his top 400, but he's not even currently on the list and could have a spot next year. I mean, the universal DH, opening up more jobs on, on 15 teams, that would be fantastic for for. A lot of teams. I think there are a handful of NL teams that clearly already have enough big league depth to just move guys around. But there are others that have a player like this that you'd actually be pretty excited about if you got the opportunity. Uh, I think Jonathan Aranda was also a name that you brought up to me. I mean, he's with the Rays, so uh, it's more of like maybe, hey, he's a trade piece. Um, but what do, what do you think about that profile and, and where does he fit? Yeah, it really is too bad we we won't get to see these guys as September call-ups. You know, I know people <laughs> don't like the pitching, the excessive pitching changes in September, but we also lose out on a chance to see these guys because all the players we're going to talk about are going to be added to 40-man rosters in November uh, to shield them from the Rule 5 draft. And Aranda is a guy who who hit his way into that consideration. I don't think preseason he would have been viewed as a lock, but um, scouts and managers at AA really like this guy. Barrels the ball consistently. Great hitter. Some power, you know, there's a chance for 20 down the road, I would say, but it's going to be more batting average and on base based production. Uh, there's some position agnosticism. He, he's played mostly first base. I think you would expect him to play mostly second and third in the major leagues. Um, and, you know, the Rays are the type of organization who can get the most out of that profile. So if they keep him, if they don't trade him, I, I would expect him to fill that role. I guess he'd be part of the answer to the, if they were to trade Vidal Brujan, well, why did they trade Vidal Brujan? Well, they've got another guy they really like. The Rays always have another guy. It's just mm -hmm. uncanny how they uh, develop talent the way that they do. Um, one more name that you threw at me was Stephen Kwan, an outfielder in Cleveland's organization. Oh, they, they could use some outfield help. So 
Uh, what does he bring to the table, and, and how close do you think he is to contributing? Yeah, Kwan is interesting. He's more of an on-base profile at the upper levels, a shorter left-handed hitter, some overlap with somebody like Adam Eaton. He doesn't run like Eaton did when he was young, but he's got that on-base oriented approach with surprising pull power. I think that's the thing that he's unlocked this year. Added a little bit more of a leg kick, you know, showing a little more power than I think anybody would expect. So I think he's played himself into center field slash fourth outfield consideration next year. Um, for fantasy, you'd like to see more stolen bases. He was hampered a little bit by hamstring this year. So I think we're looking at more of above average runner than like a pure plus um, stolen base threat. But I think the, the batting upside makes him interesting. Yeah, really low strikeout rates everywhere, including a 6% strikeout rate in his first 18 games at AAA. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> that's williams Astadio territory. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's almost it's like Nicky Lopez territory, but... Uh, it's interesting that he's got that pull side power. And you know, Cleveland, it, I know they've struggled to develop, especially outfielders, but uh, I don't know. Like, I, I go back to like Lindor and Jose Ramirez. Those are still success stories. I mean, Lindor was an early draft pick, so the fact that he became a star isn't that much of a surprise compared to Ramirez, who I think exceeded everyone's wildest expectations. I mean, it, when when Jose Ramirez was a prospect, did you see anything close to the ceiling that he has reached and sustained? No, he didn't show the power. He was viewed more as a middle infielder, utility, speed-based player. And now he's, you know, one of the best hitters in the AL on merit. Yeah, and, and like an, an easy early first rounder in redrafts. I've been wrong about a couple of times where I've been, oh, this is a, he's a fast Pete guy. This isn't going to last. Like, no, this this is going to last. He is a legitimate star for our purposes. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know what's interesting about this group of players, these the overlooked upper-level minor leaguers, I don't feel like there are that many pitchers that you could put that label on because teams are so desperate for pitching. If they have anybody like that, if they see something that's not quite right long term, they just take a guy that might have been starting and say, all right, we'll throw him in the bullpen and we'll figure it out later. So you don't really have these guys that are hidden gems on the pitching side sitting at double A AA and triple A this late in the year as often as you have hitters in that situation. And that's true. And we have in fantasy, we have a hesitancy for pitching prospects that is that is well earned. Uh, if there was one name I would mention, it would be the Mariners, Matt Brash. Um, they got him in the Taylor Williams trade last year. He's got two outstanding pitches also in his fastball and slider, and he's also got a knuckle curve and changeup that are pretty good. So he'd be one I would be looking at for uh, upside for 2022. Yeah, really nice season uh, at high A and double A for, uh, for Matt Brash. That's a great pull, a name that was not on my radar at all. So again, sad that I'm not in the uh, Rotowire <laughs> Dynasty Invitational if the league doesn't exist anymore because I'd be on the wire like right now trying to uh, add him as soon as possible. Uh, let's get to a few things you learned over the course of this season. I think there were some understandable, significant unknowns about how workloads are going to be managed for pitching and just the impact of the pandemic year in general. Are there any any takeaways now that you've seen how this has played out? I mean, the minor league season, of course, winding down now as well. And anything that you've stumbled upon over the course of this year that you think is going to make you a better fantasy player in 2022 and beyond? I'd be really interested to hear your responses because for me, it's really, it taught me the value of sample size and, and sampling because I made so many bad decisions based on our incomplete 2020 season where we just had so many variables that 
<laughs> it just was not a good evaluation year and off season for me for that reason. Like, um, you know, what are some of the things that you took away from this year? I think for me, I, I was too aggressive early with stolen bases. Like, I think I was, I didn't have the right balance of getting speed without sacrificing the quality of the players I was willing to pay up for either in an early auction or in the early rounds of a draft. And I think that's because that was just the, that was just like a narrative that was just around every, every conversation about the league. Oh, you got to get steals early. You got to get steals early. It's like, no, you don't. You can find steals up and down the draft. And I think you can build a more balanced roster anyway, where you're not necessarily relying on a Trey Turner or an Adalberto Mondesi or someone who's going to get you 40 plus bags when healthy, who can also you know bust like Mondesi, unfortunately, did because of injury and leave you flat in the category. I think I've, I've come to the point where I want to have several players who can get me six, eight, 10 bags. And if I have one or two early rounders out of my first four or five hitters, that'll get me 15 or 20. I'm happy with that. You know, if I'm, if I'm just good in the category, that's more my target. Instead of trying to win steals, which I've been trying to do for years now, I'm just trying to be like top third of the league in steals. I think that's a much more reasonable target, and I think it'll keep me from making mistakes that will also leave me deficient in the other categories. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But the, uh, the thing I'm wondering about from the small samples in 2020 from the big leagues is, I wonder how that's going to impact projections for 2022. It's still going to be in there. Every system has to decide like how much does this season matter. So I wonder if we're still going to have some su- big surprises relative to projections. We get them every year, but I just wonder if we haven't quite moved far enough into the future to be completely rid of the impacts of the shortened major league season and especially the lost minor league one. Like I think there's going to be a great buying opportunity for real teams to seek out players that had down years in 2021 who are going to bounce back in a big way in 2022. And I think if we're playing keeper dynasty redraft doesn't even really matter the format. We have those opportunities as well to be very pleasantly surprised if we know what we're looking for, uh, for players that really struggled this year. Yeah. I like um, Michael Conforto and that group put him in a park. That's a little friendlier to center field. I think you're going to get a much better year. Um, yeah. I mean, two of my biggest whiffs were, um, Marcus Semien and Brian Reynolds. What do you do with those guys? They were awful in 2020, <laughs> you know, but, but they've been among the best hitters in 21. So, Yeah, Semien, because he did it in 2019, I think it's even easier to buy into. But Reynolds sort of did too. I mean, this was, a, this was like the natural next step forward for him based on what he did when he debuted in 2019. I think he was maybe... A little underrated as a prospect. It's probably fair to say that, right? It wasn't a big deal for most people when uh, the Giants sent him to Pittsburgh. I think it was the Andrew McCutcheon deal. But he does everything well. I mean, he's lowered his K rate. He's got a career best in that mark. He draws walks. He runs a little. He's exactly the type of player that I want to have on my teams because if something goes wrong, if the power dips, maybe he runs a little more. The playing time's not going to go away. I guess that's my other takeaway for this season. It's, it's such an obvious conclusion to draw, but... I think it's because I started thinking about this maybe a year or so ago. Projections are amazing. Like It doesn't matter which ones you like. You can like ATC, the Ariel Cohen system, or the Bat, or Steamer. It doesn't matter which system you like. They're all really good. Projections are, are great, and they're really helpful. But if everyone's using the same projections to come up with values, you have to have some way to get an edge. And I think the way you get an edge 
is having a better understanding of how playing time is going to work over the course of the season. And I think one type of player that is consistently underrated is the Brian Reynolds type, the guy who doesn't pop in terms of power and speed, but projects exceptionally well for the maximum volume role because so many good teams are using platoons and mixing and matching and trying to find ways to keep players fresh for the postseason. But there is this sort of sweet spot where a rebuilding team can take a guy like Reynolds. They don't have anybody they should throw out there. They should maximize his playing time. And he's going to pile up amazing counting stats to go with whatever power and speed he has, despite the fact that the offense around him isn't that good. I think that's one other area where I'm trying to get a lot better. I want to be better than the field at accurately projecting playing time. That, that lineup thing is a good point, too, because that, that also introduced some hesitancy for me with Reynolds. It's like, how many runs and RBIs are really going to be here? And it turns out I was wrong. I think with Simeon, one thing I remember thinking was, is he an everyday guy anymore? Or is he more of a five out of six games per week or six out of seven games per week? And, and part of his appeal in 2019, aside from the skills being really good, he played, I think, every single game. I don't think he got a single day off that year for the A's. And when I see a player do that, I think Francisco Lindor's had a season like that in the past. There's nowhere to go but down. Like you, you can't play more than that. And the counting stats have to suffer. The skills have to get better if you're going to go up in value. And it had kind of seemed to me like, okay, this is the peak for Marcus Simeon. This is a really great story. A guy that's worked exceptionally hard to become a great defender and a much more balanced offensive player. So there's nowhere to go but down. And then the shortened season happened and it was like, see, I was right. And and I think that's why like I'm so happy he had the bounce back. I don't have him everywhere. I've got him in a keeper league. So that's going really well. But I like to be humbled by this game. It happens a lot. So it keeps me coming back because if it were easy, it wouldn't be fun, right? It, it would like, why would we spend our time on this if we could get this right each and every time? But um, yeah, projecting playing time, I think is, is one thing I've learned that I have to do better because that's where I think there's actually a legitimate edge. There's one more question I want to ask you. And I asked Nick Pollock this last week, and it's something I think I'm going to bring up on a lot of podcasts in the next couple of months, because there is a clear problem in my mind as someone whose job is dependent upon the popularity of baseball and fantasy baseball specifically i do think we need to be open-minded about how to make the game more broadly appealing it, it can't just be we've always played it this way this is the way we want to play and let's just keep doing what we're doing because we like it it's okay to like what we're playing right now it's great to love five by five roto or the deepest al only league you play in or dynasty or any of the things that you really like but what would you do if you were tasked with trying to double the number of people playing fantasy baseball in the next 10 years? What's your first step? Yeah, that is a really good question. I think my mind goes to the appeal of, of head-to-head where you have wins and losses as kind of the, the scoring system rather than roto standings points. I think it's, it's just more intuitive and and, you know, allows, I don't know, it's just something that fans understand to a greater level. You know, this this one, I mean, for me personally, just just Dynasty Leagues in general, because of that continuity and that ability to function like a, a real MLA team has a ton of appeal to me. And, and, and you know, I like grinding for the next, the next <laughs> major league or minor league breakout, but I understand that's not for everybody. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say on this topic. Yeah, I think we're going to get a pretty wide range of answers uh, over the the course of the next couple of months. But I, I do think one thing with Keeper and Dynasty Leagues that I've noticed is we get questions a lot 
Um, just, just emails people saying, hey, I'm just looking for a good keeper league to play in or a good dynasty league to play in. And I think that's one of the hardest things to find. Like you might have a bunch of friends who like fantasy baseball or like baseball and would play in the league to talk them into playing in a league that has 40 man rosters and uh, has 20 teams in it because you want to be tested that way. That's really difficult. Um, but I also think it, it I, I don't know how you can solve the the problem compared to like redraft where you have all these platforms like NFBC and the great work they've done, like monetizing smaller stakes leagues, right? It used to just be high stakes only. Now they've got leagues for, I think as low as 50 bucks like that, that sort of mindset needs to somehow be applied to keeper and dynasty leagues. But I think the hardest thing about having people come in and out of a keeper and dynasty league, usually when someone leaves the team, they're leaving isn't very good. And I think you have to find a way to, to balance that out because it's, it's really an uphill battle to join a league that's five or 10 years in where someone has been kind of a negligent owner for a few seasons and hasn't done enough turning on the wire or enough trading to put themselves in a position to win anytime soon. So I think finding a way to, to make it easier to like, get into a good keeper in dynasty league and even thinking of a creative way to make those leagues a little more competitive. Like every one I played in, there's like a, a shift where about four or five teams get up to the level where they're going to contend for a while and everybody else is just kind of battling it out. And it doesn't seem like it's really easy to get out of that, that bottom part of the league. once you fall into that group. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, you make a really good point about having some sort of network because that is the biggest roadblock to this format is, is having a committed group of players who will stick with it year over year. You know, that's really, really hard to find. So maybe I'll amend my answer to that. Some sort of a keeper slash dynasty, uh, referral network or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I think maybe the the twist could be something like a like expansion drafts. Like how how like if we had added new teams to to Major League Baseball, of course, there's an expansion draft, and you protect some players, and the new teams get to choose some of the other players you didn't protect. Like maybe something like that is a way to help offset the disparities in the quality of rosters when you do bring a new player into a league. I don't know if any leagues out there are doing that. If anyone is doing that, drop me an email because I'm kind of curious to know. Has that worked? Because sometimes I have ideas that I think are good and they turn out to be terrible. Maybe that's one of them. Maybe it's not. Um, your head-to-head point, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on board with this because they've had head-to-head leagues forever, ever since I started playing fantasy baseball, and I, I never choose to play in them. And I think part of the thing we would need to make head-to-head baseball leagues more popular, we would need more consistency in the schedule. I mean, I think part of the appeal of, of head-to-head football is, well, other than bye weeks, you know your team is going to play. And all you have to do is check in on Sunday and say, oh, is my injured player in or out? Okay, he's out. I'll make a change. For baseball, it's like if you've got a five-game week for one player and a seven-game week for another player, that immediately starts to add a complicating factor to the decision-making process that I think the average player doesn't necessarily find fun. And if we had consistent six-game weeks every week, if Major League Baseball said, let's give every team Mondays off, throughout the season or a day off. Maybe it's a Thursday on weeks where you have a, a Monday holiday and you want to have people you, you want to have people go to the games on Memorial Day and Labor Day, but you're going to give them off Thursday that week, whatever. Every team plays six games every week. That that little twist, I think, would actually help to balance out our schedules and make things more appealing for our game. Yeah, and you're 100% right. The inequities of two-start pitchers as well are, rears their head a lot more in that format. 
Yeah, so I think that's the other possible wrinkle, figuring out a way to balance it out where no pitcher is getting two starts because it's just it's a lot more intuitive compared to, again, making it a little more like fantasy football, keeping the things we love about fantasy baseball, but just making it easier for people to get into and, and follow. I'm sure there's going to be uh, pe- people out there that say, you got to end the season when football starts. I don't think you have to do that. <laughs> can, we can get through four weeks of overlap if the decision-making doesn't take a few hours to, to build a good lineup and to you know to make pickups and to do all the things that we're currently doing uh, right now. Uh, Matt, before we go, uh, let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and what you guys have coming up over at Baseball America. Hey, yeah, um, on Twitter I'm Matt Eddy B A. That's E D D Y. Uh, lots of uh, Baseball America themed stuff, uh, some fantasy stuff. What we are doing at, at BA is gearing up for prospect season, ranking the top prospects in minor leagues in each organization. It's been a staple for us for 40 years. And, um, you know, we're sticking with it. <laughs> it's a great time of year. And I always enjoy the prospect handbook, all the work you guys do. So keep up the great work. And I really appreciate the time today and the insight. A lot of players that were not on my radar at all. So again, I'm jealous I'm not in the Dynasty League to chase them, but hopefully our listeners out there who are can take advantage of that before the season runs out with those last few uh, free agent bidding processes running here in the next few days or so. For Matt Eddy, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Sunday. 